I finally get to the radio station. I get a little bit of training. My first shift comes on. And after those two songs played, I was like, this is my calling. I'm going to try to figure out how to do this for the rest of my life. You're listening to Philly Who, the podcast that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia. My name is Kevin Schmidlin, and today I'm chatting with Bruce Warren, who's been working for public radio as a DJ and manager for the past 31 years. But before he was interviewing world-famous guests for WXPN, Bruce was a public radio volunteer, sweeping floors and writing newsletters. And before that, he was prepping vegetables in some of Philly's first farm-to-table restaurants. Hear his story now on Philly Who. Just a heads up, there is cursing in this episode. In the 1970s and 80s, Philly was not the same city we walk through today. So many of today's restaurants, bars, cafes, and art spaces were years away from existence. The city was caught in the eye of stormy political turmoil, protests, riots, a population boom, rapid neighborhood development. But one thing in Philadelphia remained consistent, the music. Because throughout the 70s, Philadelphia was producing its own signature style of soul. Hollow Notes, Patti LaBelle, Teddy Pentagrass were bringing Philly to the forefront of soul music. And it didn't take long for Bruce Warren to find the magic in Philly music. When I mention Northeast Philadelphia, your childhood, what are the first things that come to mind? Uh, Amazing, horrible, mostly amazing though. I grew up in middle-class suburbia, you know, and there's a lot of really very positive things about that. You know, the schools were great. You know, you felt safe. There was a time in my neighborhood in the Northeast where I don't think any of our neighbors ever locked our doors and we always played on the street. And But there was also this like pale of weirdness over it all. People buried their problems. My family, you know, we had our share of issues, but we never really talked about what those problems were. There was this really interesting tension in our neighborhood in the Northeast growing up. It was like not as fierce as the partisanship is now, but it was there. It was there. It was there. Yeah. So there was a point where I was comfortable and really happy growing up in the Northeast. And then when I was like in high school, I was like, what the fuck? I don't want Mayor Rizzo to be our mayor. Fuck that guy. Right. There was a lot of tension around that. Was it hard for you to sort of trust those feelings? Like, did it take time for you to get to that place where you're like, no, you know what? I don't like this. Or was there resistance to it? No, I got into it pretty quickly. You know, I kind of fell into a group of really cool friends. We all sort of thought very similarly about the way that Philadelphia should be. Northeast was very, very white. I went to Northeast High School. When I was in high school, I met all the cool kids who weren't necessarily white. I listened to different music. I wasn't like a big, back then it was rock. Now it's called classic rock, you know? So I knew it, but I didn't hang out with the classic rock kids. You know, I I hung out with the kids who were into funk and R&B and soul music. And what were some of the bands and artists that you listened to in those days? Well, I'm a big Bruce Springsteen fan. I always was a big Bruce Springsteen. I still am. Bruce was big. You know, when I was in high school, I graduated high school in 1975. So, Steely Dan. But, you know, I had an uncle who was really into R&B. And um, he used to listen to WDAS back in the day. And there was a great radio station called WHAT back in the day. They played, you know, R&B and soul music. 
And my uncle was my dad's father. He lived down the street from us. And whenever I kind of go out with my cousins and him or go to their house, he always had old R&B on and soul music on. And that spoke to me, I think, a lot more than just the rock thing did yeah. at the time. I am, was, and still am a huge Parliament Funkadelic fan, you know, and, and anything sort of related on the family tree, right. you know, the Brides of Funkenstein. I mean, I was, I was really into that shit. And growing up in Philly, I mean, the sound of Philly had, has probably had musically as a fan, the most impact on me. All the Gamble and Huff stuff, uh, this, you know, the Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes and Billy Paul, Teddy Pendergrass solo stuff. Um, it was just great music. You know? Now, in these days, are you thinking that you might somehow get into music, either curation or performance or something like that? Or did you have other sort of designs on life? No, I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to be an elementary school teacher, like towards the end of high school. I guess in my head that I realized that like, if I was going to solve the world's problems, education was the way to get there. Yeah. But I was always a music fan. You know, I went to tons of shows. I went to record stores all the time. I remember there was a car stereo shop a few blocks from where I lived when I was growing up in junior high school and high school. It was called Wellington Car Stereo. I think if if you have you know somewhat older listeners to the podcast, and they grew up in Philly, they would probably know. remember Wellington Car Stereo. <laughs> know that. I didn't go there to get my car, you know, pimped out. I went there to buy the forty fives every week that right. were on the charts, and I get on my bike every Saturday, ride to Wellington Car Stereo. One of the two like sort of AM stations here in Philly would always print these like top you know top ten songs of the week. Yeah. And the records, you know, you look over into the little cubby holes and they'd all be in their slots. In order. In order. Oh, yeah. I'd be like, two, four, nine. Oh, do you have incense and peppermints? Yeah, that's 12. All right, I'll take that one. <laughs> so I was always a music fan. You know, I was always obsessed with music. Yeah. Consumed by it. So you went to Temple University for education, got your degree and became a teacher. Yeah. And how did it live up to your expectations? It didn't. <laughs> it didn't. Uh, I didn't really like it that much. I had this ideal, like I was going to go in and, you know, it was going to be like, you know, I was going to liberate children's minds or whatever in my mind. And the Philadelphia school district, the bureaucracy was really thick, you know, and I, it didn't work for me. How soon until you decided? Pretty, pretty soon. You right know, away. Pretty soon. Yeah. So what also was happening during the summers, I used to work in an overnight camp uh, up in the Poconos, I guess, high school through college. So I had a job every summer in an overnight camp working in a kitchen. And I loved it. We used to cook eight weeks, nine weeks, every day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner for like 800 campers. And it was fun. I had the best time. So I knew how to use a knife. And I knew at some point I might be able to get a job. So I had a friend who I used to work with during the summers and she was working in a restaurant here in Philadelphia. And I'd moved in with my best friend. We were living in Center City, 13th and Walnut. And I, all of a sudden I needed a job and I called my friend Beth and I was like, hey, Beth, I need a job. Do you got anything? She was like, yeah, come on over. And I started working in the restaurant business, wow. which then took me down a whole new path. Yeah. I needed to learn how to bone a whole salmon and pork. And I mean, but I was always into food, mm. um, uh, despite the fact that my mom only made frozen vegetables growing up. You know what I mean? <laughs> I was pushed into the world because I needed a job. Yeah. And I liked to be in a kitchen, you know? And so you were happy. 
I was really happy. Yeah, I was making like $3.35 an hour living in Center City. I was living it, man. I was like, I, what the hell? Like, this is the greatest thing in the world. We were partying our brains out and staying out all night and going in and as, as that Jackson Brown song goes, get up and do it again, yeah. amen, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it was really fun, but I learned a lot. And I was really lucky because back in the 70s, at the end of the set, this was like 79, 1980 now. I'm an old guy. There was a restaurateur in Philadelphia. He still is here. His name is Stephen Posis. And Stephen opened up uh, two restaurants that were very influential. One was called The Commissary and one was called Frog. And they were kind of like the first real farm-to-table restaurants in Philadelphia. That was like the era of like quiche and omelets, the omelet bar. I'll never forget the omelet bar in the back of The Commissary. And then I was with Stephen... I never worked directly for him, but I was in his company. And then he opened up a slightly, a different version of the commissary called Eden Restaurant. So when Steven opened those restaurants, I was part of the team that sort of went and opened up those restaurants. And I was working back at the house. So you were passionate about this, you were loving life. How did your time in the food industry come to an end? Kind of slowly, Yeah. right? This is where sort of the next chapter begins. But you know, like in life, like things happen and you don't know that they're gonna, you know, you can have a couple things going on yeah. and you think the one thing that is the primary thing is gonna be the primary thing. Oh yeah. And then there's like the one or two other things that you got kind of got going on that you like to do. That's literally that's this. You. <laughs> that's you, that's you, this, that's Philly who, right? That's what this is. So I was a fan of music. Let's go back to the music thing because yeah. this is what happens. All my friends, they're all like, how do you know about all this music? Like, where do you discover all this stuff? And one of my friends said, well, you should start a fanzine, a fan magazine. Fan magazine. Right? I was like, that's a great idea. So I started a fanzine. It was like, you know, I would do record reviews and I'd write long articles about stuff in music, right? It's like a pre-internet blog. So it was a pre-internet blog. And fanzines were like a thing in the yeah, 70s yeah. and 80s. And I used to read tons of them. So... I would handwrite them all out, you know, and like cut pictures and shit out and paste them to the pages. I would create my own top 10 lists of like, you know, stuff. I did one a month. It was called The Blaster, by the way. I have no idea why. <laughs> you don't know where I have that no came idea. from. I had this really cheesy logo in what I thought looked like really cool graffiti writing at the time, like hip hop graffiti writing at the time. And it was The Blaster. And... The actual logo was a boom box oh. that I traced like, <laughs> yeah. you know, with tracing paper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I started doing this. It got to the point where I was like mailing out like a hundred of these, 150 of these a month. Wow. One day somebody said to me, you know, you could get paid for writing. So you were just doing this as a hobby? Hobby. I went to the Xerox store once wow. a month, printed out a hundred, 150 of these things. Somebody said, you could write like for a living. And I had no idea. Like, I didn't even think about that. And that's when I attempted to begin my freelance writing career right. while I was still working in the restaurant business. Right. I would send copies of the blaster to like all the local newspapers, the uh, Philadelphia Weekly City paper. They were big then, you know, they were hot. And I used to read a lot of music journalism. I never really saw myself as being the greatest writer in the world. You know, I would read the Village Voice music section, the New York Times music section, like literally every week, cover to cover. And 
I didn't have half a clue what the fuck these people were talking about half the time, but it really educated me, you know? So that's what I did. I would just like mail shit out to people and call them up and say, can I do this? Can I do that? And ultimately there was a guy at the Philadelphia Weekly who took a chance on my writing and I slowly but surely started to build that up. I wrote freelance for the Philadelphia Inquirer for a little bit. One of my very small journalistic claims to fame is I wrote the first article mainstream article about DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. What? And that was really cool. No it was in the Inquirer and I still have it. I, I yeah. just, you know. So I, I learned a lot. And actually, as I started writing for more credible journalism magazines, I worked with some editors who really started to have an influence on me that I didn't realize I would later use in radio about storytelling and writing, everything from headlines to tell me who these people are and why should I care. How was it then that it, the restaurant okay. industry was chopped off? I was covering the local music scene for a now long defunct local newspaper called the South Street Star. Wow. That was the thing. I haven't heard that one. That was the thing back in the 80s. Yeah. It was pretty popular, actually. I was covering local music. There was a guy who was in a band called the Johnsons. They were a local band. They were kind of like REM replacements type thing. Okay. And he was a student at University of Penn. We became friends. He was the student music director at WXPN back, I guess it was 85, 86. And one night we're hanging out in the club and he said, hey, do you ever want to be on the radio? And I was like, yeah, sure. What the heck? I even think about it. And uh, he goes, well, we have some overnight positions open, volunteer positions. Do you want to be a DJ? And I was like, hey, yeah, sure. What the heck? What do I need to do? And he goes, well, you'll come in, you do a little training. And I was like, okay, uh, and what can I play? And he goes, you can play anything you want. I was like, really? He goes, yeah, you can play anything you want. So I was like, all right, I'm game. So a couple months later, I finally get to the radio station. I get a little bit of training. And uh, my first shift comes on. My first two songs, I played an Ornette Coleman song. He's a jazz player and a Grateful Dead song. And after those two songs played, I was like, this is my calling. I'm going to try to figure out how to do this for the rest of my life. Two songs. It was unbelievable. It was like magical. It was my burning bush moment, right? It was like, whoa. You found it. So I found it. And... I was still working in the restaurant at that point. And it took me a couple of years to phase out because I was still volunteering at the radio station. I did anything. And people were like, sure, mop the floors, no problem. Help us fundraise, no problem. So I really learned a lot when I was volunteering there. And finally a job came up and I applied for the job and I got the job. How long was it that you were volunteering? It was a couple of years. That's a long time. a couple of years, yeah. But I loved it. You know, I would do my shit. I would go in, do my shift every couple of nights. Occasionally I would do some fill-ins. I was working nights in the restaurant, but I did shift to sort of daytimes and I would cook brunch on Sundays. Okay, at the restaurant so, you were doing days, and, so you yeah, could do the night yeah, DJing. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. So, you know, I'd get off at midnight, one o'clock in the morning, go home, get up, go to the restaurant, you know. Yeah. Now you were in your, this was early 30s, right? Yeah. And so at this point you're like, I found my calling. This yeah. is what I want to do. And and if, if I would have asked you then, like, how long do you think you're going to be doing this? Would you have said forever? You know, I've always been a kind of go with the flow kind of guy. Yeah. I was perfectly happy working in the basement at the commissary making 335 an hour. And I probably, that could have lasted for like two years. Yeah. 
or three years. I mean, look, shit, I got into public radio. You know what I mean? It was like, you know, I could have gone to commercial radio. I, I, I could be driving a fucking Lamborghini. Now, I, you know, I'm a nonprofit guy, but I've always been into the whole public media thing. Now, there's a difference between playing whatever songs, which you've been doing. You've been cur- you had been curating and writing about music for years already. Was it difficult for you to start to actually interact with musicians and start to conduct interviews? Like that's a whole different skill set, right? Like did that, did you feel that that came naturally to you? So when I was doing longer form writing for magazines, I was doing interviews, you were interviewing, but I wasn't doing many of them in person. Yeah. You know, it was mostly always on the phone, but you know, transferring from, you know, the printed word to the spoken word is really difficult. I think not a lot of journalists, I think over the years have really made that transition well at least the ones that I've been exposed to. I'm sure there are many who have. I hear well-established music critics like on NPR now, and some of them are good and some of them are not so good. But then you actually meet, physically meet people. And I still get kind of nervous when I meet people. Oh yeah? People ask me like, so what's it like to meet X, who, whatever? And I'll be like, you know what? Most of the time they're at the station for business and I'm doing business. Yeah. So I'm very respectful of that. Right. There's a range of people in the music industry who fawn over musicians yeah. and want to hang. I'm not in that category. Uh, I want people to feel like they have the, the respect for their privacy. And I want people to have a great experience when they come in the radio station. I want them to make sure they know that we want them to sound really great. Yeah. And then we'll treat their work with the respect it deserves. I'm not, I'm definitely not cheapish. You know, I, I have to, I have to go like, Hey, this is where you're going to perform. And this is hi, welcome. And you know, so I try to just treat people like they would want to be treated. They're just humans. Exactly. That's it. They, they all, they all eat dinner. They're all people. Yep. <laughs> they all go to sleep. They're all scared. You know, they're all yeah. you know, this, that they're all, it's yeah. all the same. So Elvis Costello has always been one of my heroes. And I remember the first time Elvis Costello came to the radio station, I was nervous as shit. You know, they were flying in from Canada somewhere. His band was flying in separate. They had all their backline shipped from a local company that was coming separately to the radio station. And we knew Elvis was going to show up. So he shows up. How you doing? Nice to meet you. Your gear isn't here yet. But he happened to be in a really good mood that day. He was like, oh, that's okay. You know, we'll, we'll hang out. We're, we don't have anywhere to be at until like eight o'clock or whatever. They, you know, hotel. So the gear shows up and the keyboard's not there. And I'm like, fuck. It's like, it's Steve Neve, right? It's like the keyboardist of, of the attractions. He's in the room and his keyboard's not there. So at the time, our studios were at 39th and Spruce Street. It was right across the street from the Pi Lamb Fraternity House, where they've done tons of concerts. I saw some of the greatest punk rock shows in, at, at that fraternity house right across the street. I was like, I bet you somebody uh, has a keyboard there. So I sheepishly walk across the street with one of my producers and we knock on the door. Some guy comes to the door, clearly had just woken up. It was like <laughs> noon, one o'clock. I was like, hi, I work at XPN across the street. We have a guest and their keyboard isn't uh, didn't show up. Do you guys by any chance have a keyboard? And the guy goes, I think we do. He goes, hold on for a second. Like 10 seconds later, he goes, who's it for? I was like, well, you may not believe this, but Elvis Costello was over there. He shuts the door again. Like a minute later, opens the door. He's holding this like cheesy Casio keyboard. <laughs> he goes, what do you think of this? I was like, we'll take it. Yeah. I was like, and you're coming with me. He goes, you're kidding me. So we walk across the street. We go back into the studio. We go up the three flights of steps and plugs the keyboard in. And Steve loves it. Elvis is there like, this is going to be great. This is going to be great. It turns out the guy who gave it to us, he was a Penn student. He was in a local band. And the local band was called 
fisting Chelsea. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so the kid is in the control room with me and one of our other producers. And I'm like, you, you can stay. It's just like, yeah. watch this whole thing. So we do the interview. It sounds great. Elvis is really jovial. He'll tell some great stories. And at the end of the interview, I go in and I was like, hey, that was great. And I said, and by the way, this keyboard is courtesy of this gentleman right here. And Elvis goes over to him and he shakes his hand and he goes, what's your name? You know, he's, Elvis has a British accent. He goes, what's your name? He says, yeah, I'm whatever, Joe. He goes, Joe, he goes, that's a really nice keyboard you got. He goes, are you in a band? And um, the kid goes, yeah, I'm in a band, local band. What's it called? Fisting Chelsea. And Elvis just cracks up. He goes, can we retake the end of this interview? I, and he looks at me. I was like, sure. What do you want to like? What? He goes, I just want to thank Tim from Fisting Chelsea. <laughs> I'm like, great. So we sit him back down. We wrap up the interview. We do an, another out and like whatever. And, and I want to thank my friend, Tim, who from Fisting Chelsea, who gave us this beautiful keyboard to use for our session today. It was amazing. That was just a great you know, human being moment yeah. that I had with a, a, a hero of mine. And it could have gone completely south. A lot of shit has gone south. Right. Um, I won't tell those stories. Yeah. It's about, you know, kind of respecting people for just sort of the fact that they're just normal people yeah. like you and I, even though they're not normal. I, I always get a little anxious, yeah. a little tension. Even now, like we do live broadcasts, it gets the adrenaline going. You know, like I'm you totally, should. I'm totally confident. Like, yeah. you know, like, and I work with some unbelievably talented people. But there all there always is that like little thing, you know. Does that happen to you? Like when you're talking? Oh, yeah. to- Oh my god, yeah. If I don't feel those butterflies, something's wrong. No, exactly. You know that means that either I'm phoning it in, or like, or something's going to go terribly wrong because that means I'm not I'm not on my toes or something like yeah. that. Like if you're not nervous, that means you don't care, and that's a problem. So, yeah. I mean, I hope to never stop getting nervous. Can you tell me about sort of how? you know, the radio world, the world of delivery of music and consumption had changed from your perspective? Well, you know, it went from analog to digital yeah. and it went from CDs to uh, vinyl to CDs. That's one thing yeah. where it really was re really, really big. Jarring? It was very jarring. We spent a lot of money on technology. Yeah. We was still it, do. Was it hard to adapt? Like, was it? Not really. Not really. For some people, so for some of my colleagues, you know, they, you know, they miss playing albums, Yeah, which is, I totally get. When we built our new studios uh, down on 3025 where we are now, there was a little bit of discussion of whether or not we should have a, a, a turntable in the studio, you know? Wow. And the answer was yes, yeah. we, we would have a turntable and we would maybe even be able to put two in. Yeah. So from that perspective, from the distribution perspective, um, it, it really made a big difference. On the fan perspective, I think the loss of record stores was a real, is, it really had a big impact on the community. It's sort of like a local bar, you know? It's like Cheers, you know, you walk into your favorite record store and you have a guy there and you know the people and you know your friends who are buying records and, and stuff like that. Listen, the result here is not for me to sound like an old fart lamenting the old days here. I'm a modern day kind of person, yeah. you know, but I still love vinyl and I miss walking into a fucking record store. Yeah. Um, although there are some in Philly. Um, well, I mean, vinyl is coming back, right? Yeah, vinyl's coming back. As far as I'm concerned, it never went away. Yeah. I still have thousands of albums in my house. Yeah. You know, I remember like the first time I showed my kids a vinyl album. I remember my oldest son literally laying on the floor. I brought up my turntable. I had an old Techniques turntable. I still have it. And I had it on the floor in our living room. And 
I put a vinyl on and I put the needle on the record. And I remember my son was probably seven or eight years old. He had never seen vinyl before. He had no idea what this shit was. He'd only known CDs. And he laid his head on the floor and he tried to look into the needle in the groove to try to figure out like how this was working. Oh, yeah. And it was the coolest thing. It was the coolest thing. So that sense of wonder, right? Music discovery through technology, through a friend of yours turning you onto a really great record or a new band. You know, one of the questions he asked me earlier was like, so when did the music thing start? I mean, that it started when I was five and six years old, yeah. probably maybe even earlier. Yeah. You know, I wonder what are your thoughts on the importance of, of music curation today? I think it's incredibly important. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's a lot of people don't have time to curate music. Music fans want to be sort of led and there are, you know, tastemakers and there's eaters, uh, yeah. you know, there's cooks and there's, you know, right, right. customers. I mean, I think it's more important than ever from, I guess, more of a layman's perspective, just because of the sheer volume now. Well, that's it. That's right. There's so much. There's so much stuff. You're making podcasts, right? But you also consume podcasts. Oh, yeah. But making podcasts takes a lot of time. Consuming podcasts make, also takes a oh, lot of time. Uh, and to your point, I have to make, I have to decide when I'm going to do that because, yeah. and just, just listen and just be a fan instead yeah. of uh, listening for the sake of hearing what they're doing or how they did this or like critiquing. Oh, totally, totally. And you know what? Like five or six years ago, I was in a really f bad, like cynical musical state, you know? And I couldn't figure it out, uh, figure out why. I was, I, you know, I was probably burning out a little bit. But I realized that it was because I had completely lost the fan part of me. How did you get it back? I had to work really hard and very intentionally to do that. And it really meant carving out time of the day where I didn't listen to anything. I'm friends with uh, a guy named Charlie Hall, who is a drummer for War on Drugs. So Charlie's like really into jazz and he's turned me onto so many crazy good jazz bands and artists. And he's also into like Ethiopian dub music and We'll be talking, it'll be like, you know, we're, we talk incessantly about music and it'll be like, yeah, you should check out this record on like some label. And I'll be like, all right. So I kind of have a notebook that I, throughout the day, if I'm either really quickly reading some music websites yeah. or I'm having conversations with people, I'll kind of jot down like things that I need to check out. And usually that it's for both either work or for yeah. me. And I have a running list, a little running notepad. And I always go to that list. You know, my two boys are young adults now, one's 22 and one's 20. They love the fact that I was in the music business, obviously, yeah. but I never really bring my shit home. You know, every once in a while, you know, they'd overhear me talking to my wife about some problem or whatever. And they'd be like, they'd say something to me. And I'd be like, you know what guys, it could be worse. I could be prepping vegetables for 3.35 an hour, which was great for a while, yeah. but you know what? I'm so glad that changed. Yeah. <laughs> I think the biggest challenge will be keeping the workforce, not just a creative economy, but keeping the the younger workforce in Philadelphia, keeping them paid well enough, culturally happening well enough, housed well enough so that they stay here, you know, so that there is a sustainable way to have a living here. You know, I know a lot of younger 20 and 30 something folks who love Philadelphia and they, they've stayed here for a few years and they've all left, you know, that, and that's just through my lens, right? I still think we have a really horrible homeless problem in the city. And there is a pretty big disparity between the haves and the have nots. What excites you most about Philadelphia today? 
the food scene has never been better here. Mm. Even though I go back to the same restaurants over and over and over yeah, again, yeah, yeah. you know, I I, it's just like amazing, <laughs> right? And I fly into the city and I have the same reaction, like driving into the city, seeing the skyline from the Schuylkill Expressway, although I usually don't take the Schuylkill because it sucks, or flying in. You know, Philadelphia is beautiful now. It's growing. You know, it's very culturally relevant. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and leave a rating wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow along on Twitter and Instagram at PodPhillyWho and join the email newsletter at PodPhillyWho.com. Here's a very special thanks to Philly Who's patrons, Sam Schwartz, Josh Koppelman, Bob Moore, Alex Hillman, Vanessa Generelli, Ryan Fitzgerald, and Matt Glick. If you'd like to join them in supporting the show, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash PhillyWho. Philly Who is a Q9 production. This episode was recorded in the Philly Who studio powered by CIC and was produced by me and Angela Gervasi with associate production by Jackson Neal, editing by Max Graham, music by Lee Rosevere, and artwork by Lauren Carhart. For Philly Who, my name is Kevin Schmidlin. Until next time.